My guest today is actually somebody I went to college with. He's had a very interesting career. He started in corporate recruiting, making hundreds of phone calls here in DFW. Then he went to work for a large consulting firm in Chicago, went back to grad school for learning and organizational change. He spent the last few years at LinkedIn, Hulu, and Virgin Orbit. Will Leahy is now the head of learning and development at Virgin Orbit. On this episode, you'll learn about Virgin Orbit, learning and development, and how to bootstrap your own program. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or rating. Thanks. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts. Will, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, yeah, for the listener, this is round two. We had some technical issues the first go around, so this should be even better. So good luck, (laughs) Will. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Uh, All right. So how does one go from cold calling in Dallas doing recruitment to working at a rocket company? Well, that's your your uh, your guess is as good as mine. There, um, I think graduating in uh, two thousand nine, I was just scrapping to find a job. I knew I knew I wanted to work with people. I knew I wanted to. Uh, I, I was cool calling people. I'm obviously a, a relatively outgoing human, but uh, I was just happy to have, have a job. Unfortunately, it was one of those jobs where I had a had a little mirror in my cubicle that I'd written on it said "Smile and Dial," and uh, it was it was an interesting environment. But um, it was it was actually I, I it was it wasn't the best place to work. That said, I, I wanted to make it better, and it kind of launched me on my path of how do I make businesses a better place for for human beings to work and want to be. How do you help somebody wake up and say, "Oh my gosh, I love my job." And so as bad of a, a, a job experience as it might have been in some respects, it was also the most transformative for me. And so it set me on a path of going and getting additional education and learning and development and organizational change and ultimately landing some very interesting jobs and roles after that. And then I woke up one day and worked in a rocket factory. So um, that's been a very interesting and unusual experience. But getting to work with rocket scientists is, is uh, there could be worse things for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you don't have to bash that that first employer, but what were some of the things that you were seeing that were terrible that you were trying to change? I mean, was there some low hanging fruit, or was it just uh, not a great organization? Yeah, no. I mean, I think it, it, nothing wrong with um, wanting to drive profitability and results. I mean, that's yeah. that's what a business is intended to do. Uh, what I was trying to understand at the time is, can you do that while also having a human centered approach and um, you know, just small things like your onboarding experience make a huge difference. Um, checking in one on one, just some of the basic foundational components that are so you know, uh, table stakes today are, 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 we're not there. Um, but you don't know what you don't know, right. I'm just yeah. a, a young kid trying yeah, to, 22. <laughs> to close some deals, um, <laughs> which I, I actually was, was good at. And it, and it I gave me, a, uh, 
an incredible work ethic. Um, and I'm also hyper competitive. So I was, I was successful in that environment, but I knew that it wasn't my, my long-term home, but I started to design an onboarding experience. They didn't ask me to, I just did it. Um, I started to say, Hey, we should go to recruitment fairs. You should have an intern program. They're like, okay, Leahy, sure. Sounds good. Um, which, which was great. They let me do that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, how many calls did they have you making a day? Just curious. Uh, uh, you're you're going to give me you're going to give me hives here. Um, hundred and hundred and fifty or so. Um, I might have called the same number a few times. Yeah, uh, I mean, but, you I, know, that secret made, safe here. So yeah, for sure, nobody's <laughs> listening. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the most I ever made was close to a hundred, but that yeah, I can't imagine a hundred and fifty. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so after that, you go work for a consulting firm. Um, yep. What was that experience like? And then we can go on into grad school. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I did. I worked for a consulting firm, which was great. Um, what a what a fast way to learn multitude of different businesses. Uh, and I was working with really large companies. Um, GM was one of our big customers, and so uh, that was a great experience for me. And, and they eventually said, "Hey, well, we're going to give you a little over half a million dollars. Go and build an intern program." And uh, I said, "Oh, sure, yeah, great. I can totally do that." While I was left the room, I was thinking, "Nope, I have no idea how to do that." So after googling quite a few things, yeah. <laughs> what is an intern? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is intern? Uh, so yeah, I, I stumbled on a, a master's degree that actually. It was basically the day after I was asked to take this on because I thought I need to learn. I need to get additional education to figure out how to do this. And so um, luckily that consulting firm supported that and uh, participated in that. And so that was really my first leap into learning and development was just focused on on creating a, a pipeline of interns that could be full-time consultants, which was, which was amazing. I was like, called myself the intern dad and planned a bunch of fun trips and, and had a lot of fun with it. And I, I saw the joy that they had and I was like, okay, everybody should feel like an intern every day and yeah. set me on a kind of different path, which is great. I mean, did you feel like you couldn't get that experience at work or did you have to go back to grad school? Like, what was that like? Um, I, so I, you don't have to, no, certainly not. I am just predispositioned to enjoy learning. I would be in school the rest of my life if I could. So that's partially on me. That said, I picked up quickly a lot of models and frameworks uh, that, that I could apply directly. So I went to school at night. I worked full time okay, gotcha. and I would learn something and then immediately go and apply it the next day, which just learning science says is the best way to learn. Oh, I got a new tool. Let me go try it. Let me reflect on how that worked. And I was doing that every single day. And so I, I recommend people to, to go to work and go to school. It's more financially sound way to do it. Yeah. And you can do exactly what I described. However, that's doesn't work for everybody. Some people want to immerse themselves in the learning experience, which is great. Um, but, but yeah, you don't have to. It was it was very helpful for me. Awesome. Uh, so you take that, you go to grad school. How did you end up at LinkedIn? Yeah, I had been in, I had been in this program and I moved to Chicago for this program from Dallas. And I, I was still working in the same consulting firm in the Chicago office. Um, and, and I got a in-mail from LinkedIn saying, hey, we like your LinkedIn profile. By the way, we're looking for someone that has some recruiting experience, some sales experience, and some change management experience, which is what a lot of my master's was around. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have a really nice LinkedIn profile, which my wife had had actually told me to make better a couple of weeks before. So I was like, I, she gave me the alley-oop there, which was great. That's awesome. Um, 
but it was, it was interesting. I got reached out by LinkedIn via LinkedIn. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm working there as a consultant and a change manager. And, and they actually put me on most of their, their most difficult customers, which was a fun, a fun gig for uh, several years. And I also had a, eventually a learning and development lens that, that became a part of that role as well. Yeah, I mean, from LinkedIn's perspective, what are those most difficult customers like? I mean, is it a giant company that's using them or like, can you elaborate there? Yeah, LinkedIn, uh, obviously most people are using LinkedIn, but businesses love LinkedIn for two reasons. One, it's a great place for them to market themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Glassdoor is great too, but that's more the employee voice. This is LinkedIn is more the, the business's ability to say, hey, this is who we are and tell their own narrative. Um, but then also from a recruiting lens, there's a whole back-end recruiter seat license that you can have where it gives you a massive amount of visibility in the network and, and can use it as a, a really high, high-powered recruiting tool. Customers, though, and uh, come some customers like the old school way of recruiting. LinkedIn was new for them, and they just quite frankly weren't interested, or they weren't using it in the best way. And so I was going from business to business and helping, literally sitting with the recruiters and saying, "Hey, put your Rolodex away, and let's let's actually leverage this technology in a more meaningful way." And so it was a blend of teaching, consulting. Um, using some of my recruiting knowledge and, and it was a nice blend and then also change management because I'm asking them to, to behave or do things in a different way. And then sales in the sense that I'm driving additional revenue to the business as they purchase and buy more options with our LinkedIn. So it was, it was a very niche role that I just happened to be a, a great fit for. And, and ultimately they said, hey, Will, you're good at this. <clears throat> Can you train and develop all of our consultants globally, which was my first full-blown learning and development role while I was at LinkedIn, cool. which was which was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that LinkedIn front and the the mass in mails that you're getting from companies for yeah. recruitment, like I mean, are there ways like to make that highly targeted or does it just depend on if the recruiter is going after a large pool of people or if it's yeah. more executive search? How how did they look at that? Yeah, it, it's there is a massive correlation between the thoughtfulness of the message and the response and quality of the candidate that you get. So that was yeah. a lot of the coaching that I would give. And they do have tools that you can reach out to a lot of people, yet still make okay. it feel targeted. Um, and that's maybe narrowing into a specific group and in the message, noting that group or yeah. um I, but if you really find a candidate that you really like, and you've probably gotten an email before that said, hey, Matt, I love your experience. I listen to one of your podcasts. And all of a sudden, you're much more engaged because it feels personal. Yeah, so I say, sure. if it's that perfect candidate, really go for it. Take, take the extra time to let them know you've, you've looked at their background. Uh, it means a lot. Makes sense. So from LinkedIn, you move on to Hulu. What caused that transition and how was that experience? Yeah, I was I was traveling uh, just a ridiculous amount globally. So I was doing all of the learning development, everything from orientation to um, executive training, manager training. I even helped with Microsoft's acquisition of LinkedIn, which was a massive project. But long story short, I was traveling an intense amount, um, which was great. I actually loved it. Um, but I think my wife and I were looking for a little bit of a different lifestyle. We're living in San Francisco, and, and your typical, you know, tiny. Uh, 500 square foot studio for a ridiculous price. Yeah. So um, we kind of made the joint decision to go to warmer pastures south, not that much warmer, but to LA and Hulu actually 
uh, was a conduit for that. So they reached out and said, hey, we're looking for, for someone who has similar expertise. They were trying to compete with Netflix. They were going through massive organizational and structural changes. And I thought, oh, entertainment, really cool product. Um, I, that would be interesting. Uh, I loved, by the way, my time at LinkedIn. I mean, if anyone listening to this has the opportunity to work there, I, I would tell you, don't even think about it. Go in a heartbeat. Um, but they, but Hulu was, was another really interesting, great stop that gave me a different sort of tool, my toolkit of executive integration and much, much more significant amount of change management and sort of organizational design work, which I wanted in my portfolio. And so that was a, another reason I, I hopped over. What was that executive integration like? I mean, you had obviously been doing a lot of different things, but get thrown into an executive shakeup. It sounds like, um, where do you even start there? Yeah, uh, it's tough because we, I mean, I had, we, I get there and uh, Handmaid's Tales just won all these Emmys um, within my first few months of being there. And so eyes were on Hulu, which was great. And as a result of all that success, a lot of our executives were getting poached um, and moved around. And we had a brand new CEO come in, which then brings in a new CEO oftentimes, in, in, in this case, brings in a lot of new executive staff, a complete restructuring, which all this is positive, but it doesn't make it easy. And it's all under the guise of additional profitability, moving to more global platform and competing with the the larger businesses in the space, such as Netflix. Um, and so for me, it was really, how do you maintain um, engagement in the business and keep your great talent regardless of the, the painful changes of new leadership, new processes. And that was a lot of the work that I did. And I did that team by team, uh, which team was hurting the most, had the most moving and shaking and, and spending time there and helping them restructure and go through the change management process. Interesting. Does that, does a company's culture at say Hulu affect that in any way, or is everything in flux at that point and the new CEO is going to bring their own culture? That seems to be yeah. coming up tremendously in all of these podcast episodes. So yeah. I was curious what that was like from a culture perspective. Yeah, one of them will will bend. I mean, I think the culture and so much of the culture of a business is in its history. It's in its story. It's in its founders and it's in its foundation. So a new CEO, I think, has to do a great job of bending into that while also maintaining their identity and, and moving the business forward. Um, but the bigger clash from a new person to the culture, the harder the change is. And oftentimes it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, and so my role is to help this leader embrace the culture and understand the first steps, just to understand it and understand the history and be almost reverent towards it with the people that have been around and been there and understanding of it, but also painting the picture of the path forward in a way that allows people to come along and helping to craft that message is really important. So I did a lot of email writing and sessions and listening groups and focus groups and helped coach leaders how to have some difficult conversations um, or to say, you know what, that's probably not a good idea. That is really not the culture here. Let, let me help you recraft that. Interesting. Just curious. I mean, I don't know much about Hulu, but I mean, were the founders still involved at that point? Not really, but you had a lot of people that had been there eight or ten years okay, since. But gotcha. there was thirty or thirty or forty people in the building, gotcha. 
And that's awesome. Those are great people, but those are also the hardest people to get on board for change oftentimes. And then you get someone that's been there a month versus someone that's been there 10 years in the same room trying to make a decision. It's a challenge and they both have to sort of bend and lean lean in and listen to each other in a different way. So that was a lot of my my time there. Um, They also had super aggressive sales goals that that they had been given, which required scaling and change and and new processes and a massive hiring. And so all of that was was at play as well. Um, So it's fun. It was was a great stop in my career for sure. Um, And I got to meet some celebrities and have the entertainment lens, which I, I thought for me, I thought that's kind of cool, even though I'm, I get really awkward around them. So there's yeah, that. But you weren't allowed <laughs> to talk to him, right? Yeah, no, we weren't. Yeah. And I, I made the mistake of doing that on accident of course. Um, once because you, sometimes you see a, a celebrity and you, you don't think about it. You're like, Oh, I know that person. Yeah. So I ended up talking to um, Toby from the office. Like we were <laughs> old friends and I, halfway through my you know second sentence, I was like, Oh wait, you actually don't know this person. And you need to stand up and awkwardly walk away, which is exactly what I did. Did he say anything or you just... Well, he was very to... nice. Yeah, uh-huh. super oh, nice. That's good. Yeah, su- super nice. I just, you know, the, the rule is you don't bother the talent. And I had not intentionally done that. But I, it's like, <laughs> but I actually don't know you. Yeah, yeah. It's just because he's in a show that's in an office setting. It was very confusing. Yeah, uh, totally understandable. All right. So you take that experience and go to work for Virgin Orbit where you're at now. Uh, what is that experience like and what are you doing there on the learning and development side? Yeah, so this has definitely been, uh, I'd say, the biggest jump in terms of my my scope um, and sort of what I'm owning from an L&D perspective. But uh, it all started on actually back to LinkedIn. I commented on somebody's post. They responded and liked my comment. So sort of the LinkedIn flirting, if you will. And then I, I actually looked at the person's background. His name is Jesse Harris. And he happened to also be from Texas originally, had moved over to the West Coast, and we just had a similar background. Hey, this guy works for Virgin, but it's a rocket company. Just sent a quick message, say, hey, uh, we'll love to connect with you. It look like you, you have a very interesting background, and it's similar to mine, and you're doing some cool stuff. He responded very quickly and said, yeah, same with you. I actually looked at your profile. Would you want to come get coffee and check out a rocket factory? Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> Why not, right? He gives me the tour and I'm looking at actual pieces of hardware they are going to go into space and watching them build a highly complex rocket engine as we're walking around having coffee. And he's telling me the challenges as they're trying to grow and scale and the mission that they're after. And I was like, man, you have the coolest job ever. Um, next, two weeks later, he reaches out and says, hey, do you want to lead learning and development here? It's like, uh, <clears throat> Well, uh, sure. So the next leg of my journey was born from that from that initial conversation, and I, I haven't cool. looked back since. Yeah, it's been a it's been an amazing experience. I'm so fortunate. I have a brilliant team that rolls up into me that that um, is super engaged, loves what they do, super smart, and we have the opportunity to to grow and scale and help launch a rocket into space. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning for sure. That's awesome. So I think it'd be interesting to put things into perspective. How big is Virgin Orbit? Like how big is your team? Uh, Just because in our earlier conversations, you talked about how you guys were still bootstrapped. So I think that would be interesting for people to to understand that even at, say, 500 employees, you guys are still very much a lean operation. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's that's exactly right. We we are about six hundred or so employees, and we're one of three of Richard Branson's space companies. Richard loves his space companies. He's been 
wanting to go out of space since he was a kid and he's finally going to get the opportunity over the next year to, to go to space, which is awesome. Our sister company is Virgin Galactic and they actually do space tourism. And he Virgin hasn't Orbit, done it yet. He hasn't gone into space yet. We're, <laughs> we've, we've, we've made it. The, the tests have got us into space and now we're, we're pretty soon going to start um, getting our, our, we call them our, our future astronauts into to space. There's That's already awesome. 400 people that have paid the $250,000 down payment to get to go to outer space, which is amazing. But Richard's going to be one of the first. So it's 250 is your down payment. What's the total cost? No, that's there? the total, but you got to okay. pay, pay in advance. Uh -huh. So of course, uh, if, yeah, and I get a referral fee. So, so Matt, if you have 250 laying around, yeah. let me know and we can get you we'll set do. up. All right, I'm going to need this podcast to, to take off, and I'm going to need some serious sponsors. <laughs> uh, but no, but yeah, it's it's a 700-person company, and every dollar that we have investors, which is in large part our virgin parent company and Richard, and, and we, we have some other investors as well, but every dollar goes towards that rocket. It is a very expensive endeavor, as you know, to build, design, and launch a rocket. It's expensive. And that's why most space companies fail um, because it's, it's by the time you are able to take the five to 10 years to have your product functioning, you've already sunk so much money that it's, it's hard to, to survive. So um, that's why you see space companies going really fast, trying to get as much investment as possible, and then every dollar goes to the rocket, which means yeah. the other parts of the business are bootstrapping in a, in a very significant way, regardless of the Virgin brand, regardless of all the investment, <clears throat> which is the hard and fun part of my job. I have to get really creative around how do we scale and programs. I mean, just on Saturday, this Saturday, I'm in my my kitchen building out these leadership survival kits by hand. And so I'm like, have these lettering. I'm sticking. It looks like a giant arts and crafts shop. And my wife is like, so when is this going to be over? Yeah. When is this out of my kitchen? Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please get out of the kitchen. For sure. So yeah, it's, it is, um, not everything we do, we have to be really cognizant of how much we're spending and how we're doing it. But I, I think that that constraint breeds some some interesting ideas and new things. So it's it's not a bad thing necessarily. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you alluded to it there. I mean, all the money is going into a rocket. Just curious, like, do you guys, when starting a rocket company, are they starting totally fresh or is each one like what bezos is doing is slightly different than what you guys are doing or what does that look like yeah it's it, it, honestly there's does it just depend lot. on the mission like musk yeah. is trying to go to mars so that's very different from right virgin galactic exactly okay exactly yeah, it depends what problem you're trying to solve in space. So there's a company like Astroscale, for example. Their mission is to just clean up space debris. Yeah. Well, that's a totally different model and vehicle that you're going to design to do that versus Virgin Galactic, our sister company. Well, they want to get humans safely into space and back down to Earth. Well, that takes an, an insane amount of engineering, but a huge lens to safety of human life, where we um, are actually launching a rocket off the wing of a seven, seven, 747 plane from 30,000 feet, and we're trying to launch a small satellite in space. So that changes our entire launch vehicle, the design of our engine, and what we're trying to do. Gotcha. So the mission will determine, but a lot of engine technology is similar. Um, we're not do this is the engine that is launching a rocket is not the first time this engine has ever been built. Um, Makes sense. So there is a lot of legacy technology that's helpful, but it's always tweaked. We're trying to do it as quickly, as efficiently, and as cheaply as possible. 
And that's that's the global space companies, really. But that's why you're seeing Musk and Bezos and Richard Branson getting in this because they have the funding, they have the to keep a, a rocket company alive long enough to then eventually see massive profitability. Very nice. So companies come to you uh, that have a satellite that they want to get up there. Or like, who are your yes. customers? Yes, that's exactly right. So there's this whole small satellite revolution, which is satellites are getting much smaller now. Mm -hmm. um, they're about the size of your kitchen refrigerator. <laughs> and so the problem with that is they're still expensive to make. $150 million, for example, there, there's a variance in price, but that's that's often how much it'll cost to build a satellite. Well, wow, that's you're already sunk. That's not even the hard part. The hard part is figuring out how you're going to get it to space. And typically, you're going to have to find other people that are trying to launch a satellite of similar size in a similar direction. You bolt it onto this massive rocket, and you hope that it's going to the right spot. It's sort of, sort of like catching the bus. You know, you get kind of close, and then hopefully it's close enough you walk the rest of the way, and yeah. you're, you're with a bunch of other people. Well, our model is saying, well, no, we want to be your dedicated ride to space. It's one satellite. We're going to integrate it into our small rocket. We're going to launch it off the wing of a plane, which means... We're more flexible. We can fly to you and pick it up. Um, we could do that quickly, and your dedicated ride with you to the exact inclination you need to be at. And so it's it is a a different spin, and, and that's why we have a large manifest of customers that are already chomping at the bit to launch because it's more flexible, it's more responsive, it's faster, it's cheaper. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, how high does that plane have to fly? It goes up to uh, thirty thousand feet, and okay. our chief pilot Kelly Latimer presses a button and the weight of the rocket dropping off the plane kind of ricochets her away. It's a five second free fall. Uh, so the plane gets out of the way, obviously, and then it will start ignition and launch into space. It's a, it's a two stage rocket. So the second stage, once out of orbit, will fine tune, get the satellite exactly where it needs to be at the appropriate inclination. And all that's, there's no control room. All that is preset, pre-wired. Um, in the avionics of our rocket, so it's it's fully autonomous. Once the button is pressed, it's cross your fingers and hope it was all programmed correctly. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, what I mean, how are you, or what are you predominantly teaching these rocket scientists? Yeah. Like, what what skills are you trying to fill in for for that team? Yeah, I mean, on the surface, when I think about it, I'm like you work at a rocket factory, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, my my degrees are in psychology, <laughs> child development, and learning and change. So, um, rocket factory doesn't really fit into yeah. that. But as I've worked here, what I've realized is actually this population needs me and and the service that my team provides more than any business I've worked in. As as brilliantly talented as our, our engineers and rocket scientists are um, at designing and building a rocket, I'd say in some respects, not always, there is an e equally pronounced deficit or gap in some of the other software skills or leadership development skills, uh, delivering feedback, presentation, how do you coach and team, motivation, all these core soft skills that um, help drive teams forward. How do you drive engagement? I mean, even doing offsites or ticker team bowling, it's a, it's a novel thing. Um, and so I actually feel more valued and, and I'm making more of an impact here than anywhere I've worked for that reason. Um, but at the same time, I, I have had to learn the business, which is a, it's been a big learning curve for me. And they're having to learn, um, the, the leadership and some of the, the software skills components that my team is training and the learning curve is a little bigger. So it's not easy, but it's, it's, it's more fruitful for both sides. 
Interesting. I mean, during your grad school time, you did some research around job hopping. I mean, what what is your thoughts on that? What are people typically doing? What is healthy? Um, Is it every two years? Is it every five? Or does it depend on the the opportunities at your current employer, what what are you seeing there and has it really changed after a couple of years of experience post-grad? Yeah, the I mean, just data shows and, and Deloitte does a great job of yearly sort of pushing out their job report and, and what this landscape looks like. But along the short of it is, is yeah, people are staying at their jobs must much less frequently than, than before. And I, I postulate that's because the job visibility has increased dramatically um, through LinkedIn and Glassdoor. People are, are just more able to shop around. Um, it's easier to be reached out to. And so just the visibility has gone up. It used to be you had to wait for a phone call or yeah. you have to see a help wanted sign. And it, just, it was slower. So just that that technology construct has changed the landscape. Uh, but also people are getting bored more quickly. And so it's, it's up to companies to figure out how do I keep this person engaged and invested and they have to know what their next step is internally or else someone externally is going to tell them their next step and it's not going to be here. And so a lot of my master's research was around, are there generational differences? So I did a cross-generational study of what keeps somebody retained uh, longer. And does it matter if you're, let's say, Gen Z or X or baby boomer or whatever. And what my research came down to is no, it actually doesn't matter. Across huh. every generation, there's something that's 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 actually the same. People just want to know what their next step is and if they are going to be developed into it um, and if it's clear for them. And if your company is not making that path clear, a different company will, and the technology and visibility is going to make that more available. So that's sort of the, the secret sauce, I think, that I try and build here is career pathing and then the development and, and shepherding to get people into that place and, and helping them see a path one, two, three, four, five years, but also knowing that we're probably not going to have people for 10 years. And so playing your business around that reality and being realistic is, is important too. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, that's interesting that even the baby boomers want the exact same thing that a millennial wants. I, I think most people don't realize that, but it's not super surprising when you explained it that way. I mean, people want meaning in their work. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't subscribe to the uh, all the talk around millennials and this next generation of Gen Z coming in. I mean, there are differences, don't get me wrong. And I think there are things that have bubbled up like flex- flexibility and work from home and that weren't as important. But you also have to remember that technology is making that available. The, yeah. the video conferencing software and the way that, that remote working is is happening is is actually, is it is it the fact that these, this generation wants that, or is it the fact that that's actually a viable thing that a business can do now because of technology? And so, I'm always trying to look at what the real, uh, what the real reasons are. Uh, and, and I think you can't blame a generation for technology allowing something to be be the case. Yeah. So I, just, I think it's interesting if if that technology existed when when baby boomers were at their their peak or starting yeah, their careers, probably it probably would have been the same. Yeah. Yeah, but instead, you know, a lot of the narrative is, oh, they, they want to work from home, all oh, they care about is flexibility. It's like, well, is that really the case? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we can wrap up with a few rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, what is your favorite interview question? Oh, you know, I, I'll say this. I, 
I love to find out what problems people have solved and the ones they're most proud of. My, my pet peeve just in general in working with people um, is problem finders. So the people that come to you with a problem say, look at this problem. Yeah. Uh, great. That's interesting. I want the do? person to take the next step and say, and by the way, here are a couple of options or thoughts that I've had about how we solve this. Yeah. So I'm always interested in what problems people have solved. What was the challenge? How did they solve it? And, and I want to know the one they're most proud of or what, because I want to see how excited they get. That's usually the one they're most knowledgeable about. So I dig in there. I also like to know what people want to do for fun. How do they unwind is usually a question I ask. How do they like to be rewarded is something that I find that's to be interesting. One. Yeah. Uh, and something I, I want to know about my team immediately is how do they like to be recognized? Yeah. So those, those, are, those are the typical things. I, I try and keep the interview uh, I want to walk away knowing who they are as a human being, what lights them up, but also some of the problems they've solved. Yeah, makes total sense. Uh, along the same lines, I guess, a step or two before that, how do you use spot talent? I mean, given all the resources available from LinkedIn, um, how do you typically go about doing that? Do you take a personal approach or do you prefer taking a mass approach? I'm sure it depends on the role, but what are your thoughts yeah. there? You know, I I um, love no feeling more than when I see a job uh, open or there's an opening on my team, which which um, there is currently. And I think to myself, oh, I already know seven people. And that's, yeah, that's by cool. virtue of getting out there. I try and present. I go to a lot of conferences. I try and be on as many speaker circuits as I can. I try and get myself out there and and building relationships because you never know. When I'll be able to help that person, or someone yeah. else be able to help me, and that's that's a good feeling. And so uh, that's that's my typical way. And I, I just think it's amazing. The last three jobs I've gotten have been through someone I know, or a comment on LinkedIn, or yeah, somebody that likes my LinkedIn. And same for you. And so I think also um, it, it's just more of a networking game now than it is sort of they call it the the spray and pray approach for yeah. sending out a bunch of emails. Um, by the time the job's open, sometimes you're already too late. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> They've already talked to the three people they already know. Yeah. yeah. Agree a hundred percent. I mean, the past two jobs from Callbox to Frost both came through LinkedIn to to start out. So couldn't agree yeah. more. Um is Richard Branson as cool as he seems? I assume it's yes. He he's he is the coolest. Um he's he's great. I got to spend a little time with him about three weeks ago and ask him a question in front of the entire business, which was really fun. Um, and the question I asked him was around uh, how, how do you, how do you create such a great culture across all of your businesses? And he turned around and said, well, I don't know. You tell me. Like, well, okay. <laughs> um, he, he's, he's super friendly. His job really at this point, because he's so elevated is to just walk around, shake people's hands, say thank you, inspire them, ask them, ask them what they do, how he can be helpful and say, Hey, thank you for, for your work and go to the next person and the next yeah. person. When he visits, he doesn't spend any time in a boardroom. He just, he's a, he's a man of the people, if you will, which is great. And uh, had, because of that, I've had the opportunity to meet him several times and awesome. engage with him, which is great. Yeah, that, that's totally awesome. I mean, he has like 60 plus companies, right? Yep, 60 plus businesses and a lot of them are are, are new. Um, think about Virgin Hotels. If you ever if you're in Chicago, um, and I know there I think there's one in San Francisco now and somewhere else. Stay at a Virgin Hotel. Right, they are amazing. And his Virgin Cruise Line, Virgin Voyages, kicks up in 2020, I think uh -huh. in April. 
um, they were originally going to go to Cuba. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. But but uh, my boss actually is on has a ticket on the very first uh, cruise line of that next year. So that's cool. So he's he's always building something new. Most of the time in the hospitality space. Yeah. Um, but every once in a while in space. For sure. Um, what is something you believe in that few others do? I I would say. I've put together a lot of very robust programs, big, massive leadership development programs or the change frameworks for acquisition, like all these things. And, and when I went to school, they give you all these, of course, frameworks and things of that nature. And, and I found those are all great. But um, just being kind to people and remembering their birthday and remembering that it's their three-year anniversary or dropping a little thank you card on their desk, um, that does more for engagement and people's happiness at work than almost any of the large scale retention programs I've put together. And so we, we try so hard to come up with these three pronged engagement survey strategies. And yet you forget that somebody's birthday and yeah. they go home and they think about that more than anything else. So I just encourage people to remember the small things yeah. and that's actually more important than the big, you know, bulbous programs we tend to design. Awesome. We can end on that. I think that's a great place to end. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. It sounds good. Talk to you soon. Hi, everyone. It's Matt. Thanks again for tuning into Healthy Conversations. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. If you really loved it, share the episode on social media. It really helps our iTunes ranking. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.